Well, we have looked at these first, this first paragraph or so over about two weeks ago, uh, two or three weeks ago, and uh, where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. I want to back up and read that again because uh, what the, the, the verses that we're going to be looking at here this morning uh, are quite different. The whole scene is quite different from what Jesus and, the, and Peter, James, and John experienced on the mountain there uh, in the glory of, of the Lord shining about them. It tells us here, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and, it, and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they, may, so that they, may not, they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Italian Renaissance artist Raphael was one of the most famous artists in the world in the early 1500s, mentioned alongside such greats as Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. And if you're a fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that probably rings a bell. They're named for these great artists, Raphael being one of them. Uh, anybody that grew up in the 90s probably got that. If you didn't, we're moving along. Uh, anyway, his final painting, Raphael's final painting, was entitled The Transfiguration. Uh, from the late 16th century until the early 20th century, it was said to be the most famous oil painting in the world. I did not realize that. In this picture, what you have is the top half of the painting de depicting this scene that we just read about, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah and the disciples there, the three disciples there. 
But the bottom half of the picture is a depiction of the scene that's described in the second half of the text that we wrote, that, that Luke wrote for us here. Uh, this, the, the chaos surrounding this failed healing of the demon-possessed boy. And if you look at Matthew and Mark's accounts of this, uh, and, and you combine it all together, all these things are going on. You've got the boy, uh, he's convulsing, uh, there's the disciples there, uh, there's some scribes and teachers of the law who are arguing with the disciples, and everybody's pointing fingers, and you have this father holding his son with just a dismayed look on his face. It's quite a juxtaposition between the scene above, the glory of Christ being revealed, and then the scene below of total chaos. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Peter, James, and John coming from their glorious mountaintop experience of witnessing the glory, the Shekinah glory of God and the glory of Jesus there and the voice from heaven, coming down the mountaintop from that into this scene of confusion and angst and brokenness. And one wouldn't blame Peter if he had turned to Jesus and asked, do you want to reconsider going back up the mountain and building those tents I spoke of earlier? One wouldn't blame them if they beat a hasty retreat from the scene below. But that's not why Jesus came to earth. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He didn't stay on the mountaintop reveling in his glory. He came down because he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And in this chaotic scene, Jesus Christ enters, serves, and saves. Perhaps you can identify with those in this scene. Uh, perhaps you can identify with a boy whose life is completely out of his control. He suffers physically because of the demonic activity. He's thrown to the ground. The, the word there, crushed, is like breaking apart. The, the father says he is, the demon is actually crushing him, will not leave him alone. And if you look at all the descriptions that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us, he suffers what seems to be epileptic seizures. He gets rigid, he foams at the mouth, he convulses, and he's often thrown into the fire or into the water. The demon is trying to destroy him. Well, maybe your life seems out of control. Perhaps you're suffering some physical maladies that seem to have no solution. Or maybe you can identify with a father who is obviously worried for his only son. He's helpless and powerless to help him. Can you imagine what that would be like, having a, a child like this, and you can't do anything about it, you're just constantly watching him having these, these fits. And certainly, as he experiences helplessness and powerless, we, we might know what that's like in, in our lives. And certainly frustration, 
frustration. The, the disciples who, you know, if you look at the beginning of chapter 9, they were going around casting out demons and healing people. Why can't they do it now? Why can't they do it for my son? Why, why doesn't someone help me? I know that many of you can identify with that frustration. Or perhaps you feel like the disciples, perplexed at being ineffective in doing things that you used to be able to do, or, or frustrated that you cannot do what others do. Maybe you're dealing with anxiety, worry, a, a sense of helplessness or frustration with the circumstances of your life and or the lives of your loved ones. And it's all utterly out of your control. And you either want to gain control or you just want to escape. Maybe like Peter was certainly tempted to do, head back up the mountain, find a sanctuary. Well, where do you turn in the sinful brokenness of life? Because that's what's going on here. Jesus is entering into the brokenness of life that's the result of sin. And not necessarily the boy's fault, but when sin entered the world, it brought evil and, and the brokenness that results from our sin into the world. It, it brought death. It brought decay of our bodies. It brought uh, an inability to feel right about things, to think right about things, an inability to do the right thing. And, and it results in all the chaos of the world, all the chaos of life. Where do you turn in the sinful brokenness of life when, when life kicks you in the teeth, when the crushing weight of anxiety and worry feels like an elephant sitting on your chest and you can't breathe and when your life seems so completely out of control and when you ask, why me, Lord? And when your temptation is to either find some sense of control or just escape the circumstances. Well, in verses 41, 42, uh, Jesus that's where Jesus enters the scene. And he brings into this chaotic, broken scene grace and mercy and healing and restoration. And the problem is solved. And there are four things here that I want you to see as you wrestle with your own problems, your own difficult circumstances, and your own inability to powerlessness to, to make headway. First, first thing we see here is make a proper assessment of your circumstances. Uh, Jesus uh, saw what was going on here, heard the cry of the Father, and he says this interesting sentence in verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Well, what he actually is saying, he's not exasperated per se with the, the people uh, because he's perfectly loving in everything that he does. So Jesus is not being mean or ugly here. Uh, but he sees all that's going on and he's, he, he has a heart for this man and the situation. And he puts his finger exactly on the two things that are wrong with this scene. And he used these two descriptors, faithless and twisted. Faithless and twisted. We live in a world that is, first of all, 
I'll go to the second one first, twisted. The word means crooked, not straight. And some of your translations may say perverted. By extension, something that is crooked or not straight uh, is perverted. It's not like it's supposed to be. And that's what Jesus is recognizing here. This is not the way things are supposed to be. There's not supposed to be demon-possessed people in the world. God didn't create it that way. There's not supposed to be sin in the world. God didn't create it that way. There's not supposed to be sickness or death in the world. That's not how uh, God created things. These are all a result of sin, and it's made everything twisted or crooked, not like it should be. Sin has affected us, as I mentioned before. We don't do the things that we're supposed to do. We don't live under God's rule and authority as we were created to. We don't live for his glory. We tend to live for our own glory. We're turned in on ourselves, as we've been talking about. And we, when we think about things, we think wrongly often about things. We have the wrong thoughts about things, the wrong assessment of life. We look to our own wisdom, and it's not wisdom, it's foolishness. And our emotions betray us. We get mad about the wrong things and not sad about the things we should be sad about, and, and then our desires are all off. It's just a mess. We're twisted. And faithlessness. Faithlessness is exhibited most, mostly by the disciples. If you look at the uh, accounts with Matthew and, and Mark, they're a bit more detailed. They give a, bit, a few more, uh, few more uh, interactions between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus, the, the disciples are perplexed. Why, can't, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus says, because your faithlessness. These only come out by prayer. They hadn't prayed. They, they had been on a mission, early chapter 9, going around, and this is, they had victory over demonic possession. They cast out demons. They healed people. But perhaps they had grown, uh, grown into a formulaic approach to these things. They felt like they can do it. We've done it before. Let's just go do it. And they forgot to pray. They forgot to ask for the Lord to intervene and help and do the work for us. So faithlessness, faithlessness. So as we look at our world, we need to make a proper assessment of our circumstances. What's going on here? Why are we facing the problems that we face? Well, we live in a broken world. Sin is the problem with the world, and it's the problem with us. And faithlessness adds to the problem. When we try to solve the problem on our own, we try to do it in our own strength or with our own wisdom, uh, with our own guidance, we're making things all the more problematic. It just makes it worse. So Jesus identifies it. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. That's what we are. And you think, well, that's a real bummer, Tim. I mean, come on. You know, you're supposed to be getting us happy. Well, that's... That's where we can get the good news now. We've heard the bad news. That's where we are. The bad news is not good news. But there is good news. And that is we can bring our problems to Jesus. I love the way that Jesus, you know, he says the, the, says the thing, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Bring your son here. That's the greatest advice 
ever given. <laughs> Bring your problem to Jesus. Bring your problem to Jesus. How often do you face a difficulty in your life? Maybe it's your own struggle with sin. Maybe it's uh, a loved one, a family member who is going in the wrong direction and you can't seem to help the situation like this father uh, must have experienced. Perhaps you have a problem at work or a relational problem or you're in debt or you just list off any number of problems that you might be having. And you sit down and you think, now how can I fix this? What do I need to do to make this better? Well, that might not be a bad thing to think about it, but it's not, it shouldn't be the first thing we think about. That's faithlessness. We should turn to the Lord first. Bring it to the Lord. Bring your son here, Jesus said. That's how these things get fixed. Now, that I've seen on Facebook here recently, numerous places, that people say, prayer works. And, and I can appreciate that uh, sentiment. Prayer works. But I don't, it bothers me when people say works because prayer is not magic. Prayer is not a rabbit's foot. Prayer is not, it's not prayer that works so much as it is the Lord who works through prayer. I wish people would say that more than prayer works. Because you can pray to other gods, actually, does any old prayer work? Does any prayer to any God work? Or is just me praying off into the, to the ceiling? Does that work? You see? I could be just saying, well, rubbing the rabbit's foot, that'll work. That'll cause me to be blessed. That'll cause my problems to be solved. That's magic. That's not faith. But when we come to the Lord in prayer, that's how we communicate with God. That's how we lay our desires before the Lord. When we come to Him... And, and put our desires before him, our problems before him, and say, Lord, help. I don't know what to do. Guide, direct. That's an acknowledgement that we need the Lord. Not that we're just doing some ritual to try to make God obligated to do something for us. See, there's a difference there. I think the disciples had gotten formulaic in their casting out demons. They were doing it like they'd always done it, and perhaps they had left the Lord out of it altogether and just were doing the ritual part. Bring your problems to Jesus, yes, knowing that he cares more than you could imagine. Now, it may not, may not result in the, the blessing that you want or the answer that you want, but when we come to the Lord in prayer, we're putting it in his, his, his hands and leaving it to his discretion. Your will be done, Lord, not my will. And we'll, get, we'll talk more about that in a moment. So bring yourself and your problems to Jesus. That's the second thing that we see here. Bring your son here. Thirdly, verse 42, watch out for opposition as you come to Jesus. So while he was coming, while the father was bringing the son, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. It's like a last-ditch effort as this boy comes to Jesus. It's a last-ditch effort by the demon to destroy him, to discourage him, 
to impede his progress of getting to Jesus. If you are today thinking, you know, what Tim is saying there, what the Bible is saying there, I want to do that. I want to come to Jesus. Well, I just want to warn you. As you come to Jesus, Satan is going to do everything to distract you from that, to prevent you from that, to make you try to do your own thing, to try to do it in your own strength. He is going to suggest all kinds of things to you in order to prevent you from actually coming to Jesus. He's going to keep you from the scriptures. He's going to keep you from prayer. He's going to keep you from worshiping God as you're doing here today. He's going to keep you from the fellowship of other believers. He's going to do everything in his power to prevent you from coming to Jesus. He's going to make you want to look at Facebook when you should be reading your Bible. He's going to make you uh, answer a text when you should be praying. He's going to do all those things, just like he did for this this boy. Prevent you from coming to Jesus. That is the most important thing that you could do in the midst of your problems, is to come to Jesus. And then finally, the last thing. Wait for the restoration Jesus promised. That's a beautiful sentence here, verse 42. But, you know, the demon did his best but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. At last, he gave him back to his father. The father said that this is the way he's been since childhood. Perhaps he was a teenager. He had not experienced his child in, in normal life for years, apparently. And Jesus restores him. Not just physically, well, here's your boy back, but he gave everything that that boy was back to his father so that he could once again know him and love him and care for him and interact with him and teach him uh, to, to, to work and to grow up and to be a man. Jesus restored him. And that's what Jesus is doing. What he did here, and it's what he's doing in the lives of all of his people. He is restoring us. When we think about praying and coming to the Lord in prayer, seeking the answers to our prayers, we have to realize what it is that Jesus is actually doing. Because we, we tend to pray and we think, here's what I want. Here's what I want you to do, Jesus. I want you to heal this person. I want you to save that person. I want you to you know, give me a different job or whatever it is we might want. We have our ideas about what would bless our lives. But, but Jesus is not here in order to just make you wealthy and healthy for the rest of your life. That's, that's not his goal for you. I mean, yes, one day you will be healthy forever in the new heavens and new earth. And you'll be wealthy because you'll be, uh, you're, if you're a, a believer, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're a, you'll get the inheritance of Christ. It's all yours. The meek shall inherit the earth. Everything will be yours one day. And that's what he's going to, to, that's what he's going to do. He's going to restore us. But what he's doing now, before we get to the 
the already. What he's doing now is he's restoring us. He's making us holy. That's what Jesus is doing in the life of believers. His number one priority is to make you holy. And what does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. If something, you know, you read about the, the, all the appointments for the temple in the Old Testament, all these things were holy. They were dedicated to the Lord. They were washed and cleansed and purified. Well, that's what Jesus is doing with his people. He's making us holy. He wants you to be completely devoted to him. And sometimes that means we need to be scrubbed. Sometimes that means we need to be put in the furnace and, and get the impurities off the top, scraped off the top, like you would do uh, precious metals. He's purifying us, and sometimes he uses difficult circumstances in our lives. So if we're coming to Jesus and we think he's going to make everything line up and everything perfect, we've we got the wrong expectations. Yes, he did that for this young man, but what he is doing for you is much greater than just you know, giving you that Porsche you're praying for. He wants to make you completely his and holy and perfect. He wants to get rid of all those things that cause the chaos and the, the problems in your life. We talked about the first point, the, the twistedness and the brokenness. He's getting that out of you. And sometimes he uses difficult circumstances to do that. But we have this promise, Romans 8:28. All things are working together for your good. For those who love him and are called according to his, his purpose. His purpose to restore you. And then one day he will complete that restoration in the new heavens and new earth, as I mentioned. And he will give us. Well, the Father will give us to him. We will all be there together in the new heavens and new earth. That's where we're headed. Keep that in mind as you wrestle with all the problems of life. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Don't let anything impede you from going to Jesus. And remember what Jesus is actually doing in your life. Keep that always in view and let that be your hope. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that just like the disciples, one day, one day, whether through death or through your return, we will be made perfect in holiness and behold your face in light and glory. Lord, we pray that that would ever be our hope, that you would keep it before us as we come down off the mountain and wrestle with all the chaos and brokenness of life. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness and cleansing and restoration that you're doing. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that nothing would impede them from coming to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.